Psalm 6. Let's read it together. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word and this psalm which deals with so much brokenness, I pray that you would soften all of our hearts. Help us not to be prideful, distracted, arrogant. Help us to let down all of our guards and to see our souls and our hearts as they really are before you. Help us to lament well. We need it, Lord. So when we lament, we see you for who you are and we find hope and joy in you. So do that this morning. Let your spirit work in our hearts and through your word that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to start this morning with a quote uh, from one of my favorite philosophers, Mike Tyson, the boxer. I don't know who that is. It's, he's not in the news much anymore, which is a shame because every time he was being interviewed, he always said really funny and wild and crazy and sometimes some really insightful things. If you don't remember Mike Tyson, in his, in his heyday, he was the, the baddest man on the planet. He was just tearing through everybody. He's beaten everybody. No one could come close to beating him. And then when they finally did, he would bite their ear off, right? It's not a guy you mess around with. And, you know, when Mike was at the top of his game, everybody had a plan. Everybody had a plan. And they said, well, yeah, well, they didn't try what I'm going to try. And he's never seen what I'm going to do this time. I have a plan. I'm going to beat him. And the people would come to Mike and say, Mike, this guy's got a plan. What are you going to do? How are you going to deal with this plan? And Mike said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> it's just a great quote right there. Um, and it's true on so many levels. It is. You know, you could have a plan going into life, a strategy, a, a definition of what success and successful living looks like. And everything may be going well, everything's going great, it's all falling in a row checking every box, and you get one phone call. And the person on the other line says, are you sitting down? 
or you get a bad diagnosis from a doctor for you or your spouse or even your child. Or maybe your boss calls you into his office and says, we have to let you go. Or your husband or wife says, I can't take this anymore. I'm leaving. Your child runs away. Or maybe abandons the faith that you you fought so hard to keep in them. Or maybe that sin that you covered up for so long finally gets exposed. And the consequences are, are more than you can bear and everyone sees you differently. Or maybe your world doesn't change in an instance, but you do. Everything seems the same, but, but depression sets in. No matter how hard you try, darkness will not lift. It just gets darker and deeper. And as you suffer these things, you pray to God, He's your God, and it seems like He's silent. It seems like He doesn't hear you. He's rejected you. And you start to wonder, what did I do wrong? Do you love me? Are you, am I your child, Lord? Have you ever had that kind of experience? Where a circumstance or situation comes that you were completely unprepared for. Where your safe, secure world is just blown apart in an instance. Or maybe you're in that situation right now. Maybe some of you have come in, with, came in here with burdens. Burdens that nobody around you knows. That are weighing, weighing on your heart and you've come here for hope. You've come here broken. And maybe some of you aren't there right now, but you've been there. And you have the, the emotional, physical, and, and spiritual scars from suffering that happened so long ago. Every time there's a holiday or somebody's birthday, all that pain just gets turned around again, and it feels just as fresh as when it came. Or maybe, by God's incredible grace, your suffering has been minimal. You haven't experienced the pain and loss that you've seen around you, but you wonder and you worry about when it will happen. Because you know you've seen it in other people. God's word guarantees that if we live long enough in this world, we will suffer. And you know it can come in an instant. It could come today. Eventually we all get that punch in the mouth and our plans go right out the window. We're going to read a psalm today of a man who is familiar with sorrow. A man who has literally walked with God through the valley of the shadow of death. But we will learn how to see our sorrow for what it is and we'll learn how to walk with God through it to hope and peace. And I believe this psalm teaches us um, about how to do that because it shows a believer who has been broken. And then it shows that believer being mended by Christ. That's what we're focusing on today. A believer who's been broken by his sinfulness and by the suffering and the sorrow in this world, but who's been delivered and mended by his great God and the promises he's holding on to and ultimately in Christ. As we read through this psalm, I want to point your attention to three things. We'll focus on three parts of the psalm to talk about what that looks like. So we're going to first talk about David's broken condition. David's broken condition. Then his desperate petition. 
and then his hopeful conclusion. Where is David? His broken condition, his desperate petition, his pleading to God, and then his hopeful conclusion. Now, what type of psalm are we dealing with here? Let's, let's talk about some background before we actually dig in. You probably figured this out when we read it and by the introduction. This is a psalm of personal lament. He's struggling. He's, he's dealing with sorrow. But this psalm is actually also further classified as a penitential psalm. I don't know if you've ever heard of those, but those are the psalms that deal with confessing sin and asking God for forgiveness and mercy and grace. It's been historically used in the church as part of Lent to help God's people repent and get ready for celebrating the death of Christ. Now, if you have a pencil with you, I'll I'll list all those psalms. There's only seven of them, um, so you can go and look at them later. There are seven penitential psalms, and Psalm 6, the one we're dealing with, and the only one we'll deal with in our series this summer, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, which is probably the most famous, David's confession with the sin of Bathsheba, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. Now, although this is historically considered a penitential psalm, there's some important things that are missing. There's no explicit confession of sin. He hints that he's struggling with sinfulness, but we don't really know what from. And there's also no real prayer of forgiveness, which is strange because that's all over those other psalms. But David really doesn't doesn't go there. And so what we need to do then is think of this not just as a repentant psalm. It is. We can repent and we can ask God for forgiveness and grace because of this. But we have to see this mainly as a lament, as wrestling with this world and the struggles in this world. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to wrestle with all kinds of things that that bring sorrow into our life. So this is the fourth lament that we've been in this summer. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, another lament? Are you trying to turn us into monks? Right, trying to get us depressed about the world around us. And there are more joyful psalms, you know. Yes, yes, there are more joyful psalms. But can we at least agree for a second that we live in a culture, and even a church culture, who doesn't leave enough room for lament in worship? We so want to emphasize the celebratory part of worship, which is a good thing. But we lose out on what it means to lament before God. And did you know that 62 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament? Almost 40%. Would you have guessed there are that many? Probably not. Those don't make the keychain, the bumper sticker, right? They don't. But this is a huge part of the book of Psalms because God in his infinite mercy and wisdom has given us a way to see what life is in a fallen world. He wants to teach us that a huge part of our worship of him is how to be angry well and sad well and frustrated well and fearful to the glory of God. And we don't have to be like the rest of the world. We don't have to ignore our sufferings and excuse it or or medicate ourselves away from it. We can actually call suffering what it is, a product of the fall. We can own it and say it's evil and it's bad. And we can walk with God through it to peace. So yes, we need to lament. We need to lament. But we need to do it well. So let's look at this together. And let's first look at the superscript, which gives us some more information about the psalm as well. This is, it says, first of all, to the choir master, which almost all the psalms we've been studying have said that, just letting us know it's meant to be sung. It's not meant to be just a personal historical entry. It's meant to be read and sung and distributed among the people of God to help them worship. 
And it says, with stringed instruments. Now, that's not a Gibson Les Paul, right? It's not that kind of thing. Probably a harp, probably something like that. And then the next words say, according to the Sheminith. What in the world is a Sheminith, right? Exactly. ESV just says, we don't know. We're just going to leave the word. Now, the NASB says, upon an eight-string lyre, like a harp, which is probably right. All it literally means is the eighth. So we don't really know exactly what it is, but it has to do with the way that it's sung or the, the instrument that's played to be sung on. But it has to do, again, with helping God's people sing about this together. And, of course, just like we've been for a while now, this is a psalm of David, a psalm of David. And, again, we don't know when he wrote this psalm. And that can be incredibly frustrating at times because we don't really know the source of his distress. He describes his distress and his condition, but we don't know what brought that on. He could be lamenting over sin and its consequences. He could be struggling over an illness and, and physical difficulties. He could be suffering because the enemies have tried to take him down. Or maybe it's all three. Maybe it's a combination of them because in David's life, suffering doesn't come one at a time. Isn't that true in ours as well, though? I know some of you have suffered greatly from sin and illness and loss and pain, some more than others. Probably even some of you have suffered persecution of your faith, but isn't it amazing how suffering doesn't come at us one at a time? There's a reason why we have that saying, when it rains, it pours. Because suffering comes in waves, which is why it's so difficult to deal with sometimes. So we need to learn from David and how to lament and how to suffer well in this psalm. So as we go through this psalm, I want to just warn you of one thing. I'm not going to traditionally walk through it one verse at a time this time. Because David jumps all over the place. He, he talks about his condition and then he jumps right to his petition. God, help me because I'm so messed up over and over and over again. So I'm going to separate it and talk about his condition first and go through it. And then we'll talk about his petition, what he asked for as a response to that. So it's going to feel a little different this time. And in fact, it's going to feel different right now because we're starting in verse 2. So look at verse 2 as we see his broken condition. His broken condition. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. One of the first descriptions that David gives us of his state is this word languishing or drooping. It's the word you would use to describe like a withering plant. So David says, I'm weak. I'm weary. Lord, I'm wasting away and I don't know how much longer I can take this. He continues, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Now, when we think of bones, we just think of our, our skeletal structure, what holds us up, right? But in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, the bones are used as, as a metaphor for like the deepest part of us. The deepest part. Basically, David's saying, my pain has touched everywhere. It hasn't left anything from being painful. It hurts. It's difficult. And he may literally be talking about bone hurting, like physical pain. Have you ever been in that place where you've grieved or worried or stressed or, or hurt so much that it actually hurts your body? Do you ache and you're sore because of the stress that's going on in your mind? 
Oh, don't let the world deceive you that, that we're just a body. We need medication, and that's all we need. Just treat the body. No, God made us body and soul, and so our pain, our pain affects our body and our soul. David says it goes all the way to my bones. And then, verse 3, my soul is also greatly troubled. Do you see how I made it worse? My bones, yeah, they're troubled. They're hurting. But my soul is greatly troubled. The pain inside can't even compare to the pain outside. Have you ever been there? Where physical pain is brought on this wrestling with God, this strain on your soul, and all people want to talk about is your physical pain. Because that's what we see. It's right in front of our face, right? But the wrestling with God that's going on in our heart, we just we can't talk about so it gets deeper and darker and harder. And it's, it makes David weary. Jump down to verse 6. I'm weary. I'm worn out. Why, David? With my moaning. This is the guy that took on Goliath. This is the guy that killed the lion with his bare hands, that, that chased off the bear when it was after his sheep. But he's saying that I've I handled those things no problem. But this, this soul ache, this burden on me, I have no ability to fight this. There's, there's no medicine that I can take to cure a guilty and burdened soul. There's no vacation that can give me some stress relief. There's no exercise or stretch that I can, can do to relieve some of the pain. No, it's the worst possible pain because there is no escape. You can't just yell to yourself, stop it. Get out of this. Get, pull yourself out of this, this sorrow and this depression. Can't even sing Sunday school songs. Joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You can't sing that. It won't work. We can't make ourselves feel like we want to feel. All we can do is lament and cry. That's what David does. Verse 6 again. Every night could be translated all night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Of course, he's not literal here. He's not having his bed float away. He's saying, I can't stop crying. I can't even sleep because of this burden, this sorrow on my soul. Remember, this is David who in Psalm 4 said, God gives his people sleep. God gives his people peace that allows them to rest in the midst of turmoil. And David's saying, that sleep is gone. That sleep has eluded me. That peace is gone, God. What keeps you up at night? Ever struggled with a burden so much that you can't even physically sleep? That's where David is. In verse 7, he says, My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak or old because of all my foes. You know, it's, it's really hard to cry like this and act like everything's fine. Right? When someone's crying, you're not thinking, man, that person has it all figured out. You know the burden and the pain. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Crying is the universal language. And the brokenness comes to us all. Have you ever cried so much that you can barely even see through your tears? That your eyes become sore and red? That's what David's talking about here. The soreness and the pain from all of his struggle and his crying. And it, it's brought on him at the end of that verse because of all his foes. His enemies. 
His enemies may have been mocking him and saying, how can this be your God? Look at your state. Does God care for you? Would he let his child go through this? The same lies that we get whispered into our ears. But David could be thinking even more than that, like we do that. You know, it's not just my enemies. The entire world is against me. Ever felt like that? Nothing's going right. I can't, can't win anything. He says, it's turning me old. It's like saying, this grief has, is making an old man out of me. We say things like, my stress has given me gray hairs. That's what, that's what David's talking about. Have you ever been to that place? That depth of sorrow? I believe David reaches his breaking point in verse 3. So jump back to verse 3 here when he says, My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O God, O Lord. And then there's a dash. You see that? It's like a blank. It says, how long? How long what, David? How long? What are you talking about? How long till you heal me? How long will the suffering last? How long until you do something? What are you talking about, David? We don't know. This is actually an unfinished line in this psalm. That's why that dash is there. It's this idea that David is lamenting. He's wasting away. His bones are troubled. His soul is greatly troubled. My body can't take much more of this. I'm disoriented and confused and exhausted, Lord. I'm in the worst possible physical and spiritual condition I can be in. And he cries out and says, but you, Lord. And he can't say anything else. So he swallows hard and he says, how long? Have you ever been so worked up by pain that you can't even finish your sentences, your thoughts? I'm so angry, I just... Uh, So sad and broken, messed up so bad that, Lord, I don't even, David gets that. He's there. He's reached an end to himself. And I find it incredibly interesting that when David reaches that point and the rest of the psalmists reach the end of themselves, they get to that point of sorrow, they don't ever really say, why me? They don't. They complain. Yes, they complain. Complain, complain to God is a part of the Psalms. If we say you can't complain to God, we've got to tear pages out of our Bible. But there's never pride in that complaining. It's never, Lord, it's not fair. I deserve better. I'm better than this. I'm above this. Why me, Lord? No, when the psalmist and when David wrestles with sorrow in this world, they don't say, why me? They say, how long? God, when are you going to do something? But in our culture, in our own lives, the first question that comes out of our mouth in suffering is, why me, isn't it? I mean, think about it. When something bad happens, we get so offended. We can't believe it. We're shocked that it even happened. And we have to go and write books and do seminars about how God will let bad things happen to good people. But if we get the holiness of our God and our depravity, we should be shocked that anything good ever happens to us. We should be shocked that we're sitting here right now and God didn't kill us off this morning. But why me is the first thing from our lips. Because we're filled with pride. We cover up our own sinfulness. Because we're afraid to see ourselves in God's light. And so we, we lie about our broken condition before God. We lie about our own sinfulness and depravity and cover it up in our own eyes and in the eyes of people. We excuse our sin and ignore our sin and justify our sin or trivialize our sin. It's, it's not really that bad. 
Well, they made me do it. It's their fault. Yeah, you know, I'm messed up now, but I'm going to turn it around. It's going to get better, I promise. We lie and pretend like everything is fine, like we're not really struggling. And on the inside, we're falling apart while the outside looks nice and put together. We're smiling in pictures. We're dressed up on Sunday. Looks like we're living the dream, but on the inside, we're weak. We're in pain. We're despairing. Our spiritual life can start to dry up. It feels like God has abandoned us. What was once devotion becomes drudgery. Things that we used to enjoy, now we just tolerate and endure. And we tell ourselves, you know what, as long as nobody else knows what's really going on in my heart, God doesn't know either. We actually believe that we can blind God to our own condition. Like the dumb little fig leaves in the garden with Adam and Eve. Like the little kid with crumbs all over his face saying, I didn't eat the cookie. That's how ridiculous that is, that we, we think that we can cover it up. And what's worse is our world teaches us how to cover it up. Right? You're not really sick or really depressed or really dying. All you need is medicine. You're not really bad or really evil. It's your parents' fault. It's society's fault. They made you this way. This world isn't really broken. We just need better laws, better education, better politicians. But we forget we live in a Genesis 3 world that groans under the effects of the fall. We forget that we are sinners by nature and by practice, and all we deserve from God is wrath. And we build ourselves up, up in pride, and we think that God owes us an answer. Why me, God? But if we get how fallen this world is and how fallen we are in comparison to God, all we should say in sufferings is, how long? Is that? I don't know if, how many of you guys know the Capel family. I know a lot of you do, and if you haven't got to know them, you should. You're missing out. Great family. And most of you know, because we prayed for them up front, that they've been put through so much pain in the last couple of years, it's hard to even compare to anything else, through Josh and through Jay. And, and about a month ago, Jay was put in the hospital again after surgery for a blood clot, and I remember going to the hospital to visit him. I was going with John Bryant, and I was driving there on my own just thinking, how am I going to encourage this brother he suffered more than I can even imagine. How am I going to give him hope in the midst of this? And I went into the hospital to visit Jay and asked him how things were going. He described the situation, talked about all the things the doctor said. And then at the end, I didn't know what to say. I said, wow, God has really put you guys through a lot. And then Jay turned around and encouraged me. Because Jay said, you know what, I used to look forward to things. I used to look forward to seeing my kids grow up, go off to college, get married. I used to look forward to all kinds of things in my life. But after this, after all of this, all I can say is, come Lord Jesus, come. That's it. That's where we all should be. If we're not broken to that point, we're not seeing ourselves in the light of God, and we're not seeing the world around us as God has showed us. It really is. We need to be in this broken condition so that we can call out to God for help. And that's what David does. So let's go from his broken condition to now his, his desperate petition. How does he ask for help? Verse 1. We're going all the way back to verse 1 to see what he says. And at first, I want to turn you to this point. Look to who David calls out for help. That is so important in the midst of suffering. Verse 1. Oh, 
Lord, right from the beginning, right out of the gate. David uses this covenant name for God, the all caps there, like it says. I don't know if you know this, but that's the name Yahweh, Jehovah, the name that his people used as reminding them of his covenant faithfulness and his ability to keep his promises. So right in the midst of his suffering, David is saying, I'm going to remind myself who this God is. No matter how bad things get, no matter how dark this thing gets, I know who I'm calling out to. It's the God of the covenants, Yahweh. It's almost as if he's preaching to himself the entire psalm. I don't know if you noticed when we read this, he says that word eight times. He's lamenting, he's struggling, but he's calling out to God. He knows where to go to get help. And he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, it seems like discipline and rebuke is the focus here. So this could be a confession of sin. It's not clear that it is. It's like an implied sin. So David may be wrestling with his own sinfulness or something that happened in his life. But one thing is clear. David doesn't see his problems as an accident. It's not karma. It's not bad luck. It's not the circle of life. God is at work for his glory and David's good because this is God's discipline and God disciplines those he loves. David's own son, Solomon, wrote this, My son, do not despise the discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So God may be disciplining him and rebuking him, but David is focused on not just the discipline, but how the discipline is. It's hard to tell this in the English, so let me, let me describe what's going on in the Hebrew. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've read many. And so this is what it says in English. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. But in Hebrew, the words are flipped. So it says this, in your anger, O Lord, rebuke me not. In your wrath, do not discipline me. So David is focusing on God's anger and God's wrath. And he's basically saying, God, please don't be angry with me. Please don't give me your wrath. I can't take it. I can't handle it. He's afraid. He's afraid of what his sins have brought on him and what this sorrow may mean. And verse 2 helps us understand it in the opposite way. The verse 1 is negative, but verse 2 gives us the same basic plea, but in a positive way. Look at verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. God, don't give me your anger and your wrath. No, I want your grace. I want healing. David is pleading here that God's discipline would not be too harsh. He's not saying he doesn't deserve it. He's not trying to get out of it. This is the kid being taken behind the woodshed or whatever and saying, Dad, can we make it three instead of five? Please go gentle. David's worried about what his sins deserve. He's actually begging God to to do what he wrote about in Psalm 103. God, do not treat me as my sins deserve or repay me according to my iniquities. Isn't that exactly where we should be? When we see our sinfulness and we see our holy God, we understand God's wrath is on us. Shouldn't it bring fear into our hearts? Enough fear to to call out to God, not a fear to run from Him, but to call out to Him. Because we know He's the only one that can help. God, have mercy on me. In verse 4, 
basically says the same thing in a different way. Verse 4, he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. And David has three petitions in a row here. And then he goes on to reasons why God should do those three petitions. But the first one, do you notice it says turn? What a weird thing to ask God to do. Turn around, God. What does he mean by that? Well, this word is actually very common in the Old Testament. It's used when we talk about repentance. Like turning from sin. But God's not turning from sin. But the idea here is that David feels like God has his back turned on him. God's abandoned him. And what David is pleading for, no, God, turn around. Show me your face. Show me your loving kindness. Like the, the Aaronic blessing that we read all the time for benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. David's saying that peace is gone. R.C. Sproul turned that, that blessing into a curse. And I think this is exactly what David's going through right now. Listen to this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. You ever felt like that? God's walked away. He's abandoned you. Is there any wonder why David continues to say, Lord, deliver my life. Save me. Be gracious to me. I feel completely lost, completely overwhelmed without you. Come rescue me now. Like he says in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. But then David gets desperate. He pleads to God. He petitions God, but his plea is desperate. So he starts throwing out reasons why God should actually do these things. Look at what he says at the end of verse 4. Well, it's starting in the beginning. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. David didn't say, save me because I'm your king. I'm your anointed. I'm righteous, God. No, he's been saying, I'm weak. I'm sinful. I'm broken. There's no reason you should save me. So save me based on who you are. David's calling out to his God's character and his God's promise. Just like he does when he says the name Yahweh. Saying, God, I know that you're gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I know who you are. And I know that you're my people. You're my God and we're your people. You're the God of the promises. So Yahweh, be who you are. Be faithful to your promises now. Be faithful to your people now. Be the God that rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians. Be the God that rescued me from Goliath. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that protected Joseph in the foreign land. Be the God that gave the promise to Adam and Eve to crush sin and evil in this world. That's who I need right now. Be that covenant-keeping, relentless, loyal God for me right now. That's what he's pleading. That God would be who he is. And his second reason in verse 5, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol or the grave here, who will give you praise? This can seem so weird at first. Is, is David saying, wait a minute, death is when I stop praising? Is, is David saying there's no heaven? Death is the end? Well, that's not the case because in Psalm 16, David talks about the resurrection. It's even used in the New Testament talking about Christ. And he's talked about already worshiping God in his, in his heavenly temple. Well, maybe is this a last resort, kind of a prideful plea that David's like going, God, if you take me out, you're in trouble. I'm your MVP. 
You need me on, my, on your team, God. What are your people going to do without me? Sounds ridiculous, but we do that, don't we? God, what about all these things that I'm responsible for? If you take me out, we're in trouble. Can't live without me. But that's not David. He's been saying he's weak and broken. So what's David saying here? He's saying basically this. If you save me from death, Lord, if you pull me out of this sorrow, you get the praise. You get the glory. God, your reputation is on the line here. The world knows that I'm your people. And if you come through, then I will give you praise. I will recognize it's you. And by the way, everybody will know it's you because look how bad off I am. And if you pull me through this, then you will get glory not just from my lips, but from the world. Everybody will see how good you are and faithful you are and merciful you are. God, this is all about you. It's an argument based on the glory of God and his reputation in the world. But we have a really hard time thinking that God cares about his glory that much. We do. Yeah, we know the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? We know that. We memorize that, some of us. But when the Bible says, you alone deserve the glory, we kind of act like God says, shucks, guys, you're embarrassing me. Keep it down, will you? When the Bible says, you alone deserve the glory, God doesn't say, shh. He says, louder, louder. And you know what? It's not heartfelt enough. So you need my spirit to change you. You need to spend your whole life finding ways to glorify me better. And you know what? It's not loud enough because there's not enough of you yet. Spend your life teaching others how to do the same thing. In fact, go to the nations. Risk your life. Give your life so that I may be glorified. That's how much glory, how much God cares about his glory. And David knows that God is jealous for his glory. And David knows that every time God delivers his people, it's for his glory. It's never just for his people. It's for his glory and his fame. And so people can see how good he is. Oh, this is how we need to pray in suffering. Not that we would be, have our situations turn around so it's easier or better. Or better for the people around us. No, we pray for God's glory. God, heal me, help me, pull me out of the sorrow so you may be honored, God. So you may get the glory. So I can go on praising you and worshiping you and showing others how to do this. And you may be thinking, well, I've been there. I've been where David is. I've, I've prayed that prayer. I've even wanted to glorify God in my healing. Healing hasn't come. Healing hasn't come. I'm still in the depths of sorrow. I'm still languishing here. Where do I find hope? Because David's desperate here, but he's not hopeful yet, is he? Well, we find hope in the exact same place that David finds hope. We find hope in our covenant-keeping God and in his Messiah, Christ. That's the only place to find hope in the midst of suffering, and that's exactly where David goes. So he's told us his broken condition He's cried out to God desperately, pleading in his, his desperate petition for help. And now he finally gets to his hopeful conclusion. Verse 8. Verse 8. Depart from me, all workers of evil. Whoa, where did that come from, David? Are these the same enemies that you said were bringing you down, that were bringing the sorrow? These are the enemies of God that may have been mocking you and mocking your God? 
All of a sudden, you stand up and say, get out of here? David's saying, you better run because something bad's about to happen. This is a warning. He's not languishing anymore. He's found hope. Where did he find the hope? Verse 8. For the Lord, Yahweh, has heard the sound of my weeping. Literally, the voice of my weeping. Like we talked about last week, God knows the language of our prayers, or our, our cries. God hears you. The hope in the midst of suffering is that God hears. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayers. Three times he calls out to Yahweh this covenant-keeping God, and three times he says the same thing. God hears me. God hears me. He's rejoicing that he's been heard by the God who can actually do something. And the last time he even says God accepts my prayers, which is going beyond hearing to this like God's on the job. God's on the job. He's got my back. God knows my broken condition. He, he's heard my desperate petition, and he'll come through. He'll come through. I don't know if that will be now or later, but God is faithful. I don't know if he'll ease my mind and, and heal my body or relieve my pain now, but, but he's on the job. He hasn't forgotten me. I don't know if I will ever get rid of this guilt and sin that I feel that I'm struggling with day after day, but my God is faithful to his promises. and He's promised to fix even that. He won't break his promise. He won't disown me. I'm his child. He cares for me, and he wants to provide for me. David rests in the character and the promises and the greatness of his God. That's where he finds peace and hope. And here's his conclusion. Verse 10. All my enemies, physical, spiritual enemies, shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. He takes the same words he used in the beginning to describe his pain, my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. One day my enemies will be where I was. They're going to be as low as I was. This world feels like it's against me right now, but God is going to set this world right. He's going to fix this. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. As fast as this trial has come, this burden, this sorrow has come, that's how fast God will turn around. This pain and suffering will one day feel like a dream, like a bad dream that you woke up for and like, whoa, I'm so glad that's over with. That's what God's going to do. Well, I wonder how you feel about this this morning. I wonder if you've identified with, with David's broken condition. Maybe you've prayed that prayer, but you haven't got to that hopeful place yet. And you still wonder, does God hear my prayers? Does God even get what I'm going through, does he get the suffering? I'm here to tell you that God does hear your prayers if you call out to him in faith. And God does get your pain. In fact, what David was holding on to is, is a promise that he knows happens in the garden. Adam and Eve were given a promise that one day someone would come and crush sin and Satan. And we got some clarity of what that looks like through Abraham, Isaac, and even David himself knew that there was a Messiah that was going to come through his line and it's going to fix and rule and reign and set this world right. But what David didn't know is that this Messiah wouldn't just come to rule. He would come and enter into suffering. He would come 
become the man of sorrows, to take on the, the burdens that David is lamenting about. He entered into the sinful world for us, not becoming sinful himself, but entering into the consequences of sin and even taking that to the cross. So when David says, my soul is also greatly troubled, our Lord cried out, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death, the night before he was crucified. When David fears God's wrath and God's anger because of his sin, Jesus says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I'm afraid of what it's going to be like tomorrow. But then our Lord says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And David says, God, you've turned your back on me. I feel like you've turned away from me. You've forsaken me. Lord, deliver my life. And our Lord cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53 calls him the man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we, we esteemed him not. Jesus took the sin of this world on himself, went to the cross, took the fall and all God's wrath on himself, and then rose again. And by faith in him, we can have new life. So yes, Jesus understands your pain better than David. He gets it because he's there. He even gets it better because he fought to victory. Hebrews 4 says he's a sympathetic high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands the struggle of a broken family of brokenness, of illness, of difficulty in this world. And he battled it to victory. Well, if you're struggling, if you're lamenting, if you're burdened this morning, turn to Christ, the one who gets it, the one who came to live it and to free you from it. Repent of your sins, or it'll be eternal lament. Only ones that will lament eternally are the ones that, that run from God, that forsake Him, that don't recognize their sinful condition. But we need to repent, to turn to God in faith, find hope and peace and rest, that even if the sorrow doesn't lift now, He will set it right one day. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It would be so difficult to struggle with pain sadness and sorrow in this world, even though most of us see that every day in our own lives and the lives of people around us. God, help us to struggle well. Help us to struggle in a way that looks to you in faith, desperately calls out for hope and salvation, and finds hope and salvation in Christ. And in the hope that he's coming back to set everything right, to judge and bring peace and joy forever. Lord, let us look to that eternal hope in the midst of our suffering. We thank you for your word that reminds us of that. In Jesus' name, amen.